But dear friends, dear young people, please do turn in your Bibles there to that passage that I read in the Old Testament, the book of Nahum, or the prophecy of Nahum, just after the book of Micah. And taking for our theme this afternoon, the subject, as we go through the attributes of God here, God's everlasting wrath. And I read from verse 2 of Nahum chapter 1. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth, and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. And he reserveth wrath for his enemies. And then we read, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Our theme this afternoon, as we find it there in the verse 2, he reserveth wrath for his enemies. I want to speak this afternoon on a very difficult subject. We cannot avoid this subject in the Scriptures. God has declared that he is a God who is jealous for his glory, and he is a God of wrath. Yes, we can speak much and long about God's love. God is a God of love, and God is a God who is good, as we considered last time, God is a faithful God. His mercy is forever to them that fear him. But God, as we read there, reserveth wrath for his enemies. And this particularly ought to get our attention this afternoon. If we know not God, we read there in Job, how Job speaks and says, Acquaint now thyself with God, and be at peace with him. Of course, God has made peace on behalf of his elect there upon the cross at Calvary. But his elect will hear his word, and they will repent, and they will believe, and they will find him to be a merciful God. But outside of that, my friends, let me say God is a God who, as we read here, who reserveth wrath for his enemies. We're told here that he is slow to wrath. I'm very aware that this is a very sensitive subject. We don't want to handle this as sometimes it is done rashly and crassly. We want to speak about the wrath of God in an accurate way, but also in a sensitive way. I'm mindful that there may be those here that have had lost ones that have gone to a lost eternity. And it, I'm sure, brings great pain to your soul to think that they are now in a place reserved for that fiery day of judgment. We read of those in even the days of Noah when God destroyed the whole earth. We read how those lost souls Millions of them are reserved in a place of perdition. A day that they will have to face the Almighty God. And there is no hope for them. 
The Bible speaks of no place such as purgatory. It speaks of a place where men go, one of two places, heaven or hell. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, the Bible knows of no other place for sinners. There's a great gulf fixed where men cannot cross over that place. They either go to a lost eternity or they go to be with Jesus Christ until that coming, that second coming. Now in our special meetings, we have been considering the attributes of God. Let's just very briefly go through them. What is God like? In the first place, we thought of the holiness of God. And there is a specific order that we began to study these attributes of God. We must begin there. God presents himself as the God of light, in whom there is no darkness, there is no shadow of turning. There is no blemish in God. He is a God of pure, matchless, spotless, glorious light. He approaches in as he dwelleth in that place of unapproachable light. And no man can approach unto God but by God the Son, who is the light of the world. In the first place, God is a God of holiness. And when we think of God's holiness, it permeates all of his attributes. Holiness, really, we could say, is the primary essence of God. When you look at all of God's attributes, every one of those attributes are colored with holiness. His love is holy. His justice is holy. His wrath is holy. His omnipotence is holy. His omniscience is holy. Everything that he, he sees is with holy intent. Everything that he does with his immutable power and wisdom is holy. Everything that he decrees is holy. We speak of his holy will. We read in Exodus 15, 11, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods, or so-called gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness? Those words were uttered after the destruction of the Egyptians, Pharaoh and his army. As that great army floated upon the crests of the waves of that Red Sea, they sang, God is glorious in holiness as they saw the enemy destroyed, the wicked. God, who is glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. It was a wondrous thing that God parted the Red Sea for such unworthy people as the Israelites, and yet destroyed the wicked Egyptians. It was his good pleasure to do so. Then God saves his people to a holy life. We read, Annunciating the coming of the Lord Jesus and what work he would do on behalf of his people. In Luke chapter 1 verse 74, why they should be saved so that they might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. God calls his people to live a holy life, not to live as they want, 
that we might appear before him in holiness, not just here on earth, but one day perfectly, without spot or blemish in heaven. Then we thought of the power of God, didn't we? God who made the heavens and the earth says in Jeremiah 32, 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? There's nothing too hard for God. He is omnipotent. Then we thought of the omniscience of God. David speaks about this so much in the Psalm 139, how the Lord knows David's thoughts, even from afar off. God knows everything. And we're reminded in Hebrews that there is no creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You will have to do with God. I will have to do with God. Not only is his word all searching, not only does his word divide the thoughts and the intents of the heart, and sometimes, very often, uh, the word of God comes to us and it paralyzes us, doesn't it? it? It stuns us in our sin and it searches our hearts. And we say, woe is me, I am unclean. But that's not enough to recognize simply our sin. But we will have to do with this God. There's nothing that is hidden from him. We will stand before him. He who searches the hearts of men. Everything he says will be before the whole world one day. Everything that is covered will be uncovered. Everything will be exposed one day. God who knows the deepest secrets of our hearts. He knows the thoughts of all men. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Yes, God knows everything. And my friends, as we look at this world, it is a wicked world. We have to realize that every creature will stand before God very soon and give an account of their lives. This is how God will judge the world, because he knows all things. And he will judge by his law, and he will judge by his gospel. That's what we're told in Romans chapter 2. Not only will he judge by the law of God, but Paul says, by the gospel. And then we thought of the immutable, immutability of God. God who is immutable, that is, he does not change. He says, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. God has made promises from all eternity. Grace was given. Grace was given to his people in Christ Jesus. And God does not rescind. God does not turn upon any of his promises. He does not change his character. He does not change his being. He does not change anything about himself. He does not change the standards by which he judges men. God does not change. He cannot change. He cannot add to his perfection. He cannot add to his character. He cannot subtract from his character. He is the ancient of days who is the same, and Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then we thought last time of the faithfulness of God.
God is ever faithful to his promises. He is faithful to them who he promised to give his son, to regenerate them, to call them, to glorify them finally. He says in his word, moreover whom he did predestinate them, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. And we're told also, aren't we, for all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. God is faithful. God is faithful even to those who are so unworthy of his faithfulness, so unworthy of his love. And we want to continue preaching the gospel while we bring to you these glorious attributes of God. Friends, we'll never truly understand the depths and the wonder of the gospel at the same time while we don't consider his attributes. As we look at the gospel and as we look at these glorious attributes of God, surely they wondrously complement each other. As I hope to see again this afternoon as we consider this most difficult subject. And it brings me no pleasure to consider this, but we must. We must consider the wrath of God. We find it a difficult subject because we are fallen creatures. We must begin there. If God were not a God of wrath, that would be terrible. Imagine that he didn't execute judgment upon wicked things. Could you imagine what kind of a God he would be to allow this world to carry on as it is for countless years? For this world to carry on forever and forever? It would be terrible. He would be a hideous God. And we're told in this very passage that he will bring wrath. God is jealous, verse 2. And the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. My friends, the Bible says he is angry with the wicked every day. Every day. Because when God looks down, he sees that none, absolutely none are righteous. I deserve the fires of hell. So does everybody here today. If we can't say that, we know absolutely nothing about ourselves and we know nothing about God. If we cannot say that, I deserve hell, everlasting hell, everlasting wrath. If we can't say that, we really don't know ourselves and we really don't know God. We're not acquainted with the God of the Bible. So many are acquainted with a God of their own imagination, a God of their own thoughts, a God who is accommodating to sin. But God is not like that. God is a God of wrath. Many try to forget that there is such a thing as divine wrath because it makes them afraid and uneasy. Just the mention of God's wrath makes them anxious. And so what they try to do is they suppress these thoughts. They try to imagine that God is not a God of wrath. 
They argue that God is loving and merciful and that he can accommodate sin. He will excuse people. But God says even in this passage that he will not acquit the guilty. Now there are so many warnings, my friend. Not just this passage, but consider from the very lips of our gentle Lord Jesus, who when speaking to Nicodemus said, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And then he said to him, He that believeth not the Son, the wrath of God abideth on him. There is wrath even now, as we will consider this afternoon. This world, this present world that we live in, is subjected to futility because of the fall. And even now the wrath of God, as we will read in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, is being displayed. It is on display right now by God giving sinful men over to increasing sin in their lives. As we look at this world, there should be present and ample proof that God is a God of wrath. As men openly deny him and hold down the truth and unrighteousness, what does God do? He gives men over to a further debased mind and a debased heart. When man abandons himself from God, he destroys himself. And God removes the common restraints upon society. And you see just how wicked man can become. There is wrath, my friends. In Job 36, 17, we're reminded, Thou hast fulfilled the judgment of the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold on thee, because it says there is wrath. Beware, lest he take thee with his stroke. My friend, he could take you right now. He could take you in an instant. We're told in Deuteronomy, their foot shall slip in due time. And a man goes to a lost eternity. The Lord Jesus spoke of that place where the worm never dieth and the fire is never quenched. Place of everlasting destruction. Paul in Ephesians 5, 6 says, Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Don't be deceived. There are so many that peddle a false gospel. So many that peddle a false Bible. There is one Bible. And the Bible tells you the truth. That there is a day of vengeance. That there is a day of wrath. Peter speaks of it in 2 Peter 3.6. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, are reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. This present world will soon be consumed, my friends. The fact that somebody chooses to deny Christ's words and the words of the apostles and the prophets doesn't take away the truth. God has spoken and it shall be done. The wrath of God, my friends, is an unmistakable fact. It should be very plain to us. Now, I'm very aware that this is a sensitive subject. I'm aware of the dangers 
of even upsetting people. But friends, it would be immensely upsetting to avoid the truth. It would be worse, it would be callous not to speak about these things. I'm reluctant to inflict pain upon you, but I must preach God's word. I don't want to do that in a crass and ugly way when considering the subject of hell and God's wrath, as some have done in past time, but it's something we must do nonetheless. We must preach God's word. Jonathan Edwards says, consider what it is to suffer extreme torments forever and ever, to suffer day and night from one year to another, from age to age, from 1,000 ages to another. So adding age to age, thousands to thousands, pain, wailing, lamenting and groaning, weeping, grinding your teeth, and so on, without relief, without change. Well, we could go on and speak on these things, but we must speak on them. The world mocks at the idea, friends, of God's wrath. John Milton, one of the great poets, writers of the past, said this, and so many like him bluster and boast against hell, and the idea and the thought of it. John Milton said, I will call no God good who sends people to hell. And if only such a being sends me to hell, to hell I will go. Well, my friends, John Milton did not understand himself, didn't know himself, certainly in the light of God's word, neither did he know God. And I say, in the words there of Job, acquaint thyself with God and be at peace lest he take thee, and not even a ransom shall deliver thee. Now, it should be clear to us, as we are made in the image of God and we have fallen from God's image, this is why Satan was cast out. He was the very first to be cast out of the presence of the Lord and with a great entourage of angels. It wasn't human beings that sinned first, we need to remember this, not even here upon earth, it was Satan. Satan who was cast out of hell, out of heaven, cast to the earth, tempted our first parents and they chose to sin. And all have sinned since. And man is therefore rendered inexcusable because we have not kept God's law. We know God's law to be true. Paul tells the Romans there in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. In chapter 2 he says, Thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that doest the same things. And then he says, But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them who... Do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt not escape the judgment of God. And then he goes on to speak about wrath. First of all, the necessity of God's wrath. Because God is holy, as we thought. 
We wouldn't say God is holy and just and right if he didn't punish sin. Wrath is God's bringing to bear justice upon sin. That's really the essence of God's wrath, isn't it? He must punish sin. Of necessity, God is a God of wrath. If you consider the argument from the less to the greater, think in the human sphere just for a moment. He who loves purity and chastity and has no wrath against impurity and unchastity is a moral leper, as A.W. Pincus said. He who pities the poor and defenseless and has no wrath against the oppressor who crushes the weak and all and slays the defenseless but loves them too is a fiend. Nothing but a fiend, an enemy. And it's the same with God. And people even say this. Or the wicked, they say. Hitler, Mussolini, all these tyrants of the past, they're in hell. That's what they say. Man is affirming it in his heart that God is a God of justice. We, we live in a, a society where we love to see justice. We'd say it'd be wrong for the murderer to walk the streets. It'd be wrong for the rapist to carry on in his life. It'd be wrong for the embezzler, the thief, to carry on. He must, if he does the crime, he must do the time. And the wages of sin, says the Bible, is death. Not just a physical death. But God can't be reconciled to sin. He is reconciled to his people by the death of his son. And my friends, you see, this is why it is the only way that God can be reconciled to his people. In the very person of the Lord Jesus, we read in 2 Corinthians 5 that God was reconciling himself to his people. As he writes to the Corinthians, that's what he tells them. Why must God judge? Because he hates sin and those that continue to commit sin. Psalm 5, 5. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Again, Psalm 7, verse 11. God is angry with the wicked every day. You and I, we're not just a little bit immoral. We are thoroughly sinful. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately Wicked, we are not just little sinners. We are monsters of iniquity. As we're born in this world, we live as if there is no God. We deny God. And we don't live under his law. We deny his law. When he says, do this, we say, no. I'll do my own thing. I'll serve myself. We make ourselves our God. And that, I think, is probably the greatest sin. To ignore God. To deny him. And that's why we read, God says in Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, To me belongeth vengeance. All the sins, I suppose, in the Old Testament, when you consider the children of Israel, and all that they did is that they denied that very first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. They made gods of images, and the images that would serve themselves. 
Really, they were the idol at the heart of all of these things. Firstly, I want to say, as we have begun to look at this subject, that God, my friends, first of all, is slow to wrath. It's the first thing we must say. God is slow to wrath. We read it here, don't we, in verse 2. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. You consider this city here, Nineveh, many years before, God warned this city that in 40 days it would perish. But God sent the prophet Jonah. And many people did repent. And many people did seek the Lord. And years have passed by now. Years have passed by. And it's gone back. That generation, granted many, repented. But many have gone back. Another generation has risen up. And you see, man doesn't change, essentially. That which comes forth from a woman is not clean, but is a sinner. And uh, my young people, I have to say to you, you come from sinners, and you will give birth to sinners. Your wives will give birth to sinners. Your offspring will be sinners. They will sin against you and against God. This is why a man must be born again. A man must be changed by the grace of God. And so it is here. The city has risen up again. And God is about to destroy it. And he did. But first of all, God is slow to wrath. Think of the years that you've lived upon this earth. Every day has been given to you as a gift from God. And yet he has not taken you away. Yet, you are here with us. I am here. God is slow to wrath. When we think about this slowness to wrath, God is not rashful in his judgment. And God is very gracious. Think of all the things that you have been able to enjoy. Think of the many sermons that you have listened to. The times when others have prayed for you. And yet you're still here. God is slow to wrath. And you see, by this, because judgment upon sin is not executed speedily, we are told. Men think that God will not judge them. But friends, let me remind you, God is slow to wrath. And just because he is slow to wrath, don't think that he will not bring wrath. He will bring wrath. In fact, we're told there in Romans Chapter 2, that many were storing up wrath upon wrath for the day of judgment. And there are degrees of sin. While God is slow to wrath, you have heard the word of God, whereas many haven't. Think of the words of the Lord Jesus there in Matthew 11. As he had preached to those cities, and they had seen mighty miracles done in them. And he warned how it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment. Those ancient cities 
back in Abraham's day, that were destroyed with fire and brimstone. It'll be more tolerable for those cities that have perished, that never heard the gospel, that never heard the word of God. That God allowed them to perish into a lost eternity. My friends, God does not have to bring his word to anybody. He doesn't have to. And God's word will not be preached to every soul in this world. And yet men will perish in a lost eternity. Why? Because God is just. And because men have sinned. But how much worse for those that have sat under his word. Like those ancient cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida. And those who have sat in churches and heard sermons. Well, I know that salvation is entirely of God's grace. It requires the regeneration of the soul. Yet man, you see, therefore is still culpable. And he is still responsible for his sin. So do not use that feeble excuse. You and I, we sin willfully if we sin. But the issue is, you see, those who truly repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus find God to be a merciful God in his Son. For he has given eternal life through his Son. And they repent and they believe the gospel report. And they trust wholly in the merits of the Lord Jesus. Yes, those are his people. And we say, I say, if God would descend me to hell right now, I would deserve to be there for all eternity. I have no complaint in saying such a thing. I'm fully aware of my sin. But I thank the Lord he has been merciful to me, a sinner. I was with a young man in the open-air ministry this Thursday, spent a good while with him. He claimed to be a devil worshipper. He claimed to be one who worshipped Satan. And he was trying to convince me that the church of Satan was a good thing. They've never harmed anyone. But what a lie. He says, actually, Satan doesn't even, doesn't even exist. It's just a thought, he said. There's no such thing, but it is the church of Satan. So why would they call it the church of Satan? I don't know. But there is the temple of Satan in London. Please do not go there. Because it'll be a house of lies. Where truth is not brought. And as I was addressing this young man, I was asking him what his standards are. Would it be right if he killed me? He said, no, that would be wrong. I asked him about murder and theft and I said, well, where do you get all these value systems from? He said, well, they learnt in society. They learnt. These are things that we've learnt. So I was saying to him, well, basically man is good then. He said, well, what do you think of me? I said, well, my friend, it doesn't matter what I think of you. What matters is what God thinks of you and what God thinks of me. And I said to him, I know where I deserve to be in hell. I deserve to be in God's wrath forever and to be cast from his presence forever. And he was quite surprised at my answer. He thought I was going to condemn him. 
I said to him, my friend, God's word condemns you. God's standards condemn you. But I said, in God's mercy, he sent his son to die for me. And that is my hope. That's my only hope. I said, I'm not out here to moralize you. I'm not out here to moralize Hemel Hempstead, nor the people. I said, your whole idea of Christianity, I don't know where you've got it from. He was asking me if I had a problem with this sin, that sin. Asking me about abortion. He believed abortion was right. Well, I said, is it right to take a life? He said, well, the child doesn't feel it. I asked him, I said, well, what if that were you? In that mother's womb, I said, you wouldn't be here. He asked me what I thought of same-sex marriage. I said, well, you wouldn't be here, my friend. If you didn't have a mother and a father, you wouldn't be here. I said, this is why the Bible is right. God has given us parents, Adam and Eve, but they sinned and they strayed from God. And you have strayed from God. And he tried to blame the problems of the world upon God. So it's quite obvious the problems of the world are not God, but man. I said, that's why I don't deserve to be here. Because I have sinned against this God. And my only hope is Jesus Christ. But there is wrath coming to them that know not God. Well, he said, but that's not fair. He said, why should God save some and not others? I said, well, let me ask you a question. Say there was a, a children's home down the road. My wife and I decided there were 20 children in that children's home and we decided to take 10 and bring them into our home and look after them. I said, would that be wrong? He said, no. I said, and leave the other 10 behind. He said, no. I said, well, that's exactly it. Those children want to come and live with us and they want to be with us because they know there's a better life there. And there's a loving home. And you see, that's the way it is. By nature, I know, as Paul tells me in Ephesians 2, by nature I am a child of wrath. Even as others, I don't deserve anything. But God in his mercy opened my eyes to see his standards of pureness and perfection. And that only Jesus Christ has met that. And he gave his son for me that I might believe in him, that I would believe, that I will believe in him and trust in him. And you see, it's because God is holy. There is wrath. But there was a day, secondly, of wrath for the Christian. And it was met upon the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a number of passages in Holy Scripture that teach this. There's that passage where Paul reminds us in Romans that God spared not his son, but delivered him up, up to what? Up to judgment. We have it in the Old Testament as well. 
The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 63, speaking of the Lord Jesus who would tread the winepress of God's wrath alone. Just before that, he was in the garden in great agony and sweating, as it were, great drops of blood to the ground. And he was alone. He asked even Peter, James and John to pray, but they became faint. They fell asleep. We read there in Isaiah 63, verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. You see, God, as it were, in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ, took vengeance upon himself. That's amazing that God should take his own vengeance to himself, that God should take his own wrath to himself. It was damnation. And he drank it up. Jesus Christ drank up the damnation that was due to his people. And it says, my fury, it upheld me. As Christ was seeing the sins of his people and his own anger and his own fury, it upheld him there upon the cross at Calvary. You see, because God hates sin. But Christ loved the people with whom the Father gave him, that he should bear their vengeance. We see it in other types and figures. There in the book of Judges, chapter 6, in verse 21, we have Gideon, and he's offering an offering to the Lord. And it's upon a rock. And uh, we read there that the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand. Verse 21 of chapter 6, and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes, and there fire rose out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And if you just to skip a few chapters ahead to Judges chapter 13, the exact same sacrifice is given again. This time it's Manoah and his wife, the parents of Samson. And that same offering is made. And this, of course, we know that the angel of the Lord here is the Lord Jesus, pre-incarnate appearance of him, what we call a theophany. And we read there in Judges 13, verse 15, And Manoah said unto the angel of the Lord, I pray thee, let us detain thee, until we shall have made ready a kid for thee. And the angel of the Lord said unto Manoah, Though thou detain me, I will not eat of thy bread. And if thou wilt offer a burnt offering, thou must offer it unto the Lord. For Manoah knew not that he was an angel of the Lord. Now notice, and Manoah said unto the angel of the Lord, What is thy name? And when that thy sayings may come to pass, that we may do thee honor. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Why askest thou after my name, seeing it is secret? So Manoah took a kid with a meat offering and offered it upon a rock unto the Lord. And the angel did wondrously 
And Manoah and his wife looked on, for it came to pass when the flame went up toward heaven from off the altar, that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. My friends, that is a picture. Think of the flame. It would be the flame that would consume the sacrifice. And as it were upon the cross, God the Father torched his son, as it were, with the unleashed fury of Almighty God. And the angel we read here disappeared. This, again, is a figure of what the Lord would do. There the sacrifice poured upon the rock. In the humanity of Christ, the divine was poured upon the rock of ages. The wrath of God and fire consumed it and the angel went in. My friends, that again was a foretelling of what God would do for his people. It's a wondrous passage. But then furthermore, you notice that Manoah realized that the very angel that he saw was God. Just have a look there. It says there, The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. Manoah and his wife looked on it and fell on their faces onto the ground. But the angel of the Lord did no more appear to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was an angel of the Lord. And Manoah said unto his wife, We shall surely die. Now notice, because we have seen God. But his wife said unto him, If the Lord were pleased to kill us, he would not have received a burnt offering and a meat offering at our hands. You see, here's the thing. Sinners may not see God and live without the sacrifice of Christ. There's no hope for the sinner because there is wrath. Adam and Eve were cast from the very presence of Almighty God the moment they sinned. And they were warned of that. And so there's no wrath for those who trust in Christ. Those who love him and believe in him. They have peace with God and they have the peace of God in this sinful world. But then you say, well, how come sometimes God is uh, so hard on his children? Well, he's not wrathful with his children. But he does chasten them because he loves them. Paul reminds us of this in Hebrews chapter 12, doesn't he? He says, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Why? Because he says so that they may be partakers of his holiness. He's perfecting them. You see, God doesn't just love us to take us to heaven but to love to change us, to conform us into the image of his Son. So let us never confuse God's chastening with his wrath. The Lord does not always chide, but he chastens and he loves his people. God is good so that they are not destroyed with the world. Peter tells us this, but God is wrathful to his enemies in this life. Let me say that. God is wrathful to his enemies in this life. I said we'd look at Romans 1. Romans 1 verse 18, look there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. How? For because the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, that is by the things that are made, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to a corruptible man, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. That's the wrath of God. And you see these people going on these gay pride marches. We must remember that pride goeth before destruction. To parade oneself in their sin is a terrible thing. To ignore God is a terrible thing. To deny him. And when men are given over to all kinds of perversity and sexual immorality, and even when a nation is left to itself, that is God's wrath. When we see the world in all of its ignorance and ignominy and hard-heartedness and stiff-neckedness going on, and with so much so-called advancement, is regressing back and back in its sin. That is the wrath of God on display. It is God giving men over to their lustful hearts. I want this, I want that. They'll get more sin. And they'll injure themselves all the more in their sin. And you, my young friend, The worst thing is when God abandons the soul. And you are left to yourself. And left to this world. You're left to darkness. And the scary thing is the more a man sins, the more he wants to sin. And this is why Paul says you're inexcusable, O man, whoever thou art. You judge others. I tell you, I've never lived. Five decades now I've lived over, but I've never seen a world so opinionated as it is today. I'm all for opinion. But I'm not for rash opinion. I'm all for thoughtful and constructive opinion. But how quick... People speak without any regard to themselves and the God of heaven who is keeping them alive, the God with whom they have to do. We do not deny free speech. We love free speech. But friends, we are not free to speak about God. 
the way we want and to think about God because it's dangerous to the soul. You can convince yourself, my friend, about many things. You can deceive your own heart. And then there's wrath. The Lord Jesus said every idle word man shall give an account of. God's wrath is now in this world. You see it. But God's wrath is everlasting, finally. It's my fifth point to his enemies. We read it here. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. So not only is there vengeance now, but there is wrath reserved. How long for? For all eternity. When you die, it's not your last. It's only the beginning. And we're reminded by Peter, if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of unrighteousness and the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overflow, making them an ensample unto those that should live ungodly. It's a word to you. If you are living without Christ, you're ungodly. You have no righteousness and you seek not the righteousness of God which is by faith in Jesus Christ but your own. We're reminded men shall be judged according to their deeds. And the wrath of God. Jesus said, these shall go away, Matthew 25, 46, into everlasting punishment. My friends, it's everlasting punishment. The smoke of their torments will go up forever. And he says, and it is everlasting punishment, but to the righteous into life eternal. Human wrath sometimes is unbelievable. We see it in this world. It's unspeakable, isn't it? But God's wrath is, it's certainly measured. He is slow to wrath. And it's just wrath. But it, it will be unbearable. It will be unbearable. You think of human wrath. We've seen it on the news lately. Terrible wickedness. Think even in Daniel's day. How the king threw people in the furnace. People have done that. But friends, you know the God of whom we have sinned against. Because he is infinitely holy. Therefore the sin is infinitely great. There must be wrath. And the Bible speaks of God's wrath waxing hot. And the fearness and wrath of Almighty God is a fearful thing. It says, the Bible says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Consider 
as we close, Aaron's sons. And you might even be the son or the daughter of a Christian. Aaron's two sons, Nadib and Abihu, they offered strange sacrifice, that which God had not permitted. And God consumed them in an instant. It says suddenly, God devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Leviticus 10, verses 1 and 2. So friends, in light of all this, I must close though with the gospel. We thought how the Christian realizes he deserves wrath. Because God is holy. I must remind myself that every day where I deserve to be, God's justice, it would be right if it fell on me, but it fell on Christ, so that I would believe in him, so that I would be spared, so that God would get the glory for all eternity for saving such a worm as me. And that's my hope. And it is my prayer that God will awaken sinners from the wrath to come. That he would awaken them to their sin. Their hardness of heart. Your impurity and his purity. And you might see the purity and the loveliness of Jesus Christ. What pleases God to save sinners. And God has said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It is a day of mercy when anyone believes. And the sinner must sue for that mercy. You come not trying to fix yourself up, my friend. I said to that young man, there's nothing you can give God. There's absolutely nothing. This is not a religion of works. But it's entirely of God's grace. And those who come to Jesus Christ by faith, he will not cast out, but will have mercy because he bore their wrath. And that endless life in heaven will be a glorious life. But for the lost, my friend, it'll never end. There will be no possibility whatsoever of being reconciled to God after this life. Amen.